This episode is brought to you by Sun Terrace Records and their latest release from a band called Red Curtain. It's a self-titled 7-inch that kind of sounds like bands like Super Heaven, Jawbreaker, Basement. So visit str.limitedrun.com. You can buy the 7-inch. Do it up. Now here's the show. And welcome to yet another compelling conversation between me and what I hope is a more interesting person than me, which, you know, 99.9% of the time it is. But I'm your host, Ray Harkins. This is the podcast called 100 Words or Less. And the guest this week is Mr. Patrick O'Connor, otherwise known as Seton on the Dan Patrick Show. Now, I know some of you are probably like, what? Like, Dan Patrick? Who's that? If you've watched sports at all in the past 20 years, you probably have heard the name. So basically, I'm totally going to misspeak. So I'm doing this off the cuff, doing no research, but I'm fairly certain Dan Patrick was a broadcaster on ESPN, and I think he had some affiliation with ABC or NBC at some point, but regardless, he broke off from the mothership ESPN a few years ago, and he's doing his own show. It's awesome. It's him, three of his friends. They do sort of a roundtable discussion on sports, pop culture. Uh, I've watched the show a couple times. They actually support independent music pretty frequently, and this is definitely in part to Patrick's influence on the show. So more on him in a minute. Let me get some observation, pleasantries, business-affiliated type things out of the way. And uh, yeah, then we'll dive into the conversation with Patrick. Well, two things. First of all, I'm in Paris right now, and holy crap, is this place absolutely gorgeous. Let's be honest. If you've never been to Paris, like I I haven't been, I never had the opportunity to do a extensive tour, well, any touring in Europe uh, beyond just, uh, you know, doing a little family vacation here or there. But uh, I've been married for 10 years. Me and my wife are hanging out here in Paris. But fortunately, I'm not doing this to impede any of our, our, our touristy stuff. So don't you worry. I know you weren't worried, but, but still. Anyways, so I'm in Paris. And the second thing, so this was like two or so weeks ago, but I went to something called VidCon. And for those of you that don't know, which I imagine is a wide swath, I didn't if I didn't have to know about it professionally for my job. It's existed for six years. It was held in Anaheim, California, which is about 15 minutes away from my house, so it was nice and convenient, um, at the Anaheim Convention Center. It blew my mind. So basically what this thing is, is a convergence, conference, experience, YouTubers, Instagram famous people, Twitter personalities, Vine personalities. Um, And I know me just saying that probably gives a lot of you the heebie-jeebies because it's like, oh gosh, like internet famous people, ugh. I try not to put on that cynical hat because obviously these are these are people that I am interested in from, like I said, my day job perspective. It was such a bizarre experience because it had all the markings of things that I'm used to in regards to going to some sort of conference where it's like, oh, here's booths and people selling their stuff, people spreading information, whatever it may be. Um, but then just the amount of interest from like these large corporate sponsors so it's like you had abc and nbc there and then you had like taco bell i don't know it's just one of those things where it was like holy crap there is so much money in this thing that it's blowing my mind here's another layer of blowing my mind so tickets for this thing just to get in the doors were 150 dollars a piece completely sold out months in advance the two guys who started it john green and hank green john green is an author of a book called paper towns fault in our stars you know very young adult fair But the reason I'm giving you all this context is that it was such a, I guess, an impactful thing for me to witness because it was like, to me, 
obviously these influential bands that I've obviously been able to speak on the podcast in some capacity uh, have the same effect as a person who is famous on the internet to a 13 year old girl. And it's so, um, you know, I mean, in a way it's, it's kind of disheartening because it's like, you know, sometimes these people that are popular on the internet alone, they don't necessarily have any sort of discernible talent, you know, like they might do funny vine videos or whatever, but like, you know, they're not trying to be a musician or a singer or anything. And probably if you put them on the spot, you would ask them like, what actually, what do you do? Like what makes you compelling to these people they probably would have no answer you know and and not like it's their responsibility to know why it is that they have three million followers on whatever social media platform they're popular on but it just got so many things churning in my head i mean for one obviously made me feel old because there's there's that where it's like here here i am 34 years old surrounded by 14 to 15 year old girls but then the second thing the more nuanced thing was the fact like i said I was being able to draw a comparison to where it's like, oh man, I remember when I heard no effects for the first time and that was pretty awesome. And then these people have a very similar experience to, you know, Tyler Oakley or these other people that I'm not even going to rattle off their names because they are just going to be meaningless to you unless you obviously follow that platform or that medium in general. And, uh, you know, maybe it's meaningful, but anyways, I just want to put that in your head. So sometimes it's, it's like I said, it's really easy to be cynical and look at these people and just be like, they're the worst. Our society is going in a toilet. We're dead. We're all dead. We're all stupid. I try to look at it in a somewhat positive light to where it's like, hey, if people are finding meaning out of this and finding more than just entertainment, and hopefully these people are obviously uh, using their platform for good rather than bad. Um, there was definitely a lot of uh, sex positive messaging in regards to people being comfortable with whatever sexual preference or orientation that you have. Um, so it was cool to see that there were strains of social equality that were being flitted about in this whole um, yeah, this whole world of social media. So anyways, I had to put that in your head because like I said, it was a very interesting experience for me and I'm sure some of you will have thoughts of this. So if you do, email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. But anyways, I've rambled on too much. The show is Patrick O'Connor, like I said, known as Seton on the Dan Patrick Show. And uh, this got keyed into me a long, long time ago from a guest just randomly emailing me, or when I say a guest, I mean a listener of the show, uh, emailing me saying, hey, you should have this guy on as a guest. Him and I started communicating on Twitter and we were just nerding out big time to like talking about like Adam and his package and like these completely irrelevant <laughs> bands and acts from a bygone era. And so I knew that this guy was, was you know, walking the walk. So anyways, we discussed a lot about the, the collision of sports and, and music and all that stuff. So anyways, without further ado, here's my discussion with Seton and I will talk to you after the interview is over. I want to completely redo change by listener of my show email me because i i'm a big fan of finding people that are in unlikely places that aren't really tangentially related to kind of you know punk or hardcore <laughs> and so kind of yeah. the, the secret punks i like to call them yeah. um and so i had a listener email me and was like hey you you should be familiar with this guy because he you know does cool stuff within the sports world and i was like you know the typical sort of punk mentality in regards to sports is like right. oh i don't know man like what jock like yeah you know. no, th yeah they don't mix you know i actually have a funny story about that with uh, going to get a tattoo please do that 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 was actually my first question where it's like i'm sure most people that do find out that you obviously have a history within that are probably kind of like huh like how does that make sense yeah yeah 
Tommy Helm is a tattoo artist, and he's been on those shows uh, like Tattoo Nightmares and um, Ink Master and things like that. And uh, through a sponsorship on the show with Spike TV, part of the package was I was going to go down there and get a tattoo from him. And so he was like, uh, I, I go down there, and uh, they're sort of like, oh, hey, what's up? You know, I'd, I'd spoken to him on the phone a couple of times about what I was looking to get. And I get down there, and he was just like, wow, you're not at all what I was expecting. And I was just like, okay, uh, uh, I don't really know what that means or whatever. But so, you know, we, we start talking and it turns out that we both had been to like the same shows. Like we were both at, uh, you know, VOD show in, you know, Asbury Park at the Stone Pony. We were both at Fury of Five shows and E-Town Concrete shows. And we knew some of the same people or whatever. And he was just like, you know, I hate to tell you, but you're not a sports guy. <laughs> I hope you realize that, right? Like, I don't know if you're like confused about your idea. You're not a sports guy, though. You're like a you know sort of working class punk rock kid from Jersey, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I just happened to work on a sports show, you know. But so I get that from time to time where people expect the sports guy, and they're like, "Wait a minute, how do you know all this stuff?" Or, "Wait, you were at that show? You've been to the pipeline?" Or, you know, all these things. So, I, you know, I'll, I'll use my own personal experience where it's like, I I'm super into golf, and like I did, I was like junior PGA, and like was really focused on that. But at the same time, I would also go and you know be going to see you know Earth Crisis and Strife and Snapcase when they were coming through. And so, anytime anybody found out about one of those worlds, whether it was like you know a kid at the show was like the fuck you into golf for or vice versa where it's like wait what are you doing after you play around golf like I, I to me and i'm sure you you can identify with this where it's like uh i don't know whether it was like comfort or solace and kind of like having these two for lack of a better term worlds like not intersecting with one another well you know at a certain point uh in high school i would say <clears throat> i kind of felt like i came to a fork in the road where the two things didn't meet. You know, the, there was the sports side of me where I played, you know, soccer, baseball, basketball, things like that. And then there was this sort of punk rock side of me that all I really wanted to do was go to shows and ride my skateboard. And I kind of felt like for some reason, the way I had it in my head, I had to choose one or the other. And it was like the two don't mix because how could I be at one time a jock and at the other time, you know, a punker kid uh, with green hair. And so I was just like, you know what? I keep soccer. I quit baseball because I just wasn't into it anymore. Uh, basketball just wasn't really my thing. I wasn't very good anymore. Uh, and just dove headfirst into music, you know. And um, but yeah, and then years later, I get hired at uh, ESPN. This must be. I don't know, 15 years later or something like that, I start working at ESPN and I find all of these like old punker, hardcore kids uh, that are all super into music and going to shows or whatever. And I was like, ah, they did go together. <laughs> right. What an idiot. What's wrong with me? I could have just done both. Why did I cut one out? You know? No, I really, I like that. I, I like that you described that mentality because you definitely did feel that, you know, not maybe internal pressure, but external pressure where it's like the, because these two worlds don't coincide that you shouldn't yeah you do have to choose like you can't be you're either with us or against us so to speak you know right yeah but but then you know obviously as you get older you realize that it's like well i guess the rebellion from the sort of sports world as it were was the you know the jock mentality it was the mentality as opposed to you know saying that football is wrong you know <laughs> yeah yeah although you know but then it, it, the odd part though is that then at the same time you know like i mentioned I got really into the New York hardcore scene, uh, which at the time was all, you know, 
it was Mad Ball and and Fury of Five and E Town and well those are more you know from Jersey but mm-hmm. it was all of this tough guy hardcore you know everybody was fighting all the time all that so it was kind of like I distanced myself from the jocks but threw myself into this world of sort of like meathead dudes yeah. in a way um, <laughs> true not, not to true. like put anybody down I still I love those bands and but you know it was like some of those shows that you would go to would be like all right so I know somebody's getting beat up tonight uh and you know not that necessarily like a wuss or anything but it was like damn man can't we just dance and like go to the show and have fun without it being like you know there's five on one over there some dude getting beat up it was kind of it was weird i i, I ran into sort of what i was running away from no that's that's a very good point because yeah no one would draw those those cor- correlative lines between you know that but it's like well technically you're still seeing sports jerseys at the hardcore show you know and it's like oh yeah wait a minute hold on this is weird <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so were were you personally born and raised on the East Coast? Uh, yeah, yeah. Born and raised in uh, South Amboy, New Jersey, uh, which is a small town just outside of um, Staten Island. It's about mm-hmm. a mile square. Uh, and so I spent a lot of time in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which had a great scene, you know, going into New York and the Lower East Side, Asbury Park, New Jersey with the, the Stone Pony. It, there was a lot of great, you know, it was a great time for music in the you know, late eighties, early nineties into the two thousands in Jersey. There's a lot of great bands there. Um, good scene. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, there's, I, I definitely remember the first time I started to like, you know, get out and tour with my own personal band and like starting to play that area. It's like, you don't realize like, you know, me being from Southern California, it was like, you had to drive forever especially from a touring perspective where it's like, you know, you can, you can like set up shop in New Jersey and play Boston a few hours away and then go to New York. Mm -hmm. And like, you were so close to everything yet. Each scene was so drastically different from one another. Oh, and there was all so territorial too. You know, I mean, if you were going up to Boston to go see a show, I mean, you had to be real careful. Uh, And the same thing with, you know, somebody from Boston going to New York, it was all, you know, the whole FSU thing and DMS or, you know, everybody had their turf, it seemed like. And I was never a part of any of that stuff. It was just me and my like crew of friends that were just going to shows. But it was seemed pretty dicey. Yeah. Oh, it, it can feel threatening when you're like, uh, I just I just wanted to come see a show. But then apparently there's these like these these rules and regulations that I need yeah. to abide by that no one gave me the, the memo for. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so what was your what was your family structure like when you were uh, growing up? Like, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my dad's a teacher and my mom worked for uh, like the city of South Amboy. She was like a court clerk and sort of had a bunch of different city city clerk, all those kinds of things. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. What did your, so what did your, your dad teach? Uh, history, middle school history, like seventh and eighth grade. Did you did you have him? No, no. He taught in a different town okay. uh, than it. where we lived. You were, I'm sure, you were uh, grateful in some capacity for that. I don't want my dad as a teacher. But yeah, I know, right? It probably <laughs> would have been a little awkward. Like, I know, do I say Mr. O'Connor? Do I call you dad? Like, how does that work? Right? Do I do I have to do homework? Uh, like, can you give me a pass for this? <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, do you, you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, uh, older sister, older brother. Okay, you're the you're the baby of the bunch. I am. I am indeed. Yeah. And and my personality is exactly of that too. <laughs> Describe that cuz I I I'm an only child so I definitely have I identify with most of the the symptoms that people used to describe only children, but you know just describe a uh, a the youngest of 3. 
Well, uh, there's the way that a lot of parents tend to put it. The oldest is the experiment. The middle child is the stable one. And then the the youngest uh, sort of doesn't get away with everything, but is certainly the more rebellious of the bunch, um, but taken care of at the same time. You Got know? it. Uh, yeah, mom, I'm still the baby with mom. Uh, and I don't think that'll ever change. And sure. my older brother's always looking out for me. So uh, those those things sort of remain through life. Right. So you, you were able to, I guess, for lack of a better term, I guess, get away with more because your parents were just like, OK, like, you know, maybe it's, it's like you said, your brother will watch out for you. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, they had already been through sort of, um, you know, the first two kids. So they knew certain things were coming uh, with me, but when you're the baby, you're the baby. So it's like, oh, well, that's okay. It's just, you know, Patrick being Patrick, don't worry about it. And, you know, blue hair and staying out all night and whatever else goes with uh, the pink, like, oh, look at the baby. He's, you know, he's expressing himself. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> if you were the first, they would be like, this is serious cause for alarm. But because you're the youngest, it's like, oh, it's a phase. It's a fad. Yeah. 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 Don't worry about it. He'll grow out of it. Right. So um, as as you started to uh, grow up and, and, you know, matriculate through school, uh, what kind of kid did you find yourself being in high school? And like when did um, I, I guess a more uh, pointed question would be when did independent music start to get kind of introduced to you? You know, I would say um, I, I was into music pretty early and, and I would say because of my brother, we we shared a room. And he was really into um, like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and, and that whole thing. And, you know, I was maybe five or six years old and loved Motley Crue. Thought okay. they were like the coolest thing. Shout at the Devil was like the best thing in the whole world. I had a Motley Crue Velcro wallet that I carried with me everywhere. Awesome. Um, but then um, I, I got a little older and I sort of always um, palled around, I guess, or maybe clung to my brother uh, and sort of their – you know, the the older kids and his friends had a big influence on me. So, you know, when my friends were listening to like, you know, MC Hammer and stuff like that, I was just so into the cure, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that path had been sort of not predetermined for me, but I just followed, I guess, what the older kids were into. And then, you know, once I got really into skateboarding, which is probably... I don't know, maybe fifth or sixth grade, it was over for me in terms of music. That's where you discover, you know, punk rock and all of that stuff. So, right, right. Well, yeah, you do, you know, you, you bring up an important point. Everybody has to have that sort of, you know, gatekeeper. You have to have either it's like, you know, in your case, it's your older brother, you know, in, in other people's cases, it's like, you know, the weirdo in high school that's like, oh, here you go. And they give you like the, you know, dead Kennedy's tape or something. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, because otherwise it's like, you know, you don't have you, you won't have any idea. You're just going to start picking up stuff and you won't really develop any sort of musical identity if it isn't some if it isn't someone that's kind of showing you the way. Right, right. And then, you know, with with New Jersey there, I mean, skateboarding was big at the time in the 80s um, and I guess the 90s, although people say I think it's like Mike Vallely says, if you survived the 90s big pants small wheels era of skateboarding you know you're a lifer because that was just like the worst time in skateboarding ever um but um yeah my my sister my older sister started dating this guy uh and he knew that i skated and that i was listening 
listening to sort of listening to punk rock. I was listening to like the Sex Pistols and things like that. Right. And I didn't really know a lot of contemporary uh, punk rock happening at the time or hardcore. And um, he gave me a bunch of albums and then took me to a show to go see his band. And um, he they were doing like a Sunday matinee at the Stone Pony for uh, uh, Headache Records. Okay. And um, it was like he was in an oi band called Nibble Kenbane. And it was like Head Wounds, Nibble Kenbane, Broken Heroes and all these oi bands that played there. And I remember getting to the front of the Stone Pony and seeing this punk rocker guy with this huge mohawk uh and like you know studded out leather jacket and everything and he was kicking a dead bird and i was like <laughs> whoa where the hell am i going you know i think i was maybe 14 at the time right and uh i was like i don't really know what this is but i definitely want to be a part of it and right. I, I had no idea that it was like like whoa this is happening here too like this is the thing that happens right now like, <laughs> right. all right this is awesome like how do i find more of this Totally, totally. Because that, that's an important point. When you do start to, you know, pick up these records of usually bands that are obviously, you know, iconic, but not around, you know, like you're, you're first picking up the, the essentials and the, you can't see, like you said, the Sex Pistols. But when you're like, oh, this is happening down the street for me? Like, yeah. what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and so then, uh, so as you started to go into high school and stuff like that, um, you know, were you, uh, like you said, you'd already kind of pot committed to, you know, skateboarding and uh, music. Did you, you know, care about school? Were you just kind of, you know, float by on, on average grades to just kind of make your parents happy? Yeah, I think I was the classic, um, if he only applied himself kind of thing. You know, like you're smart. <laughs> Smart guy, um, but you just coast by knowing like, well, I could, I could do just this much and it'll be fine. I'll be like a BC student. Um, and it was just sort of like, okay, so you're going to do high school and then figure out where to go to college. And I was going to college at, actually to be a history teacher because I was just like completely clueless as to what to do with life. And, you know, people would say like, well – you can't ride your skateboard or play your guitar for a living. Like, what are you going to do f for real life kind right. of thing? Oh, I, I don't know. I guess I'll be a history teacher like that. I'm good at history, right? right? So, Yeah, yeah. It's like if you've already seen someone else work out a path, it's like, oh, I, you'll, you'll reactionarily go to that. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know what else to do, you know? And it, it, I had I grew up with a really small town mentality, even being in the shadow of New York City. It was sort of like, well, New York is there, but like, you know, the amount of times I heard, well, you can't do that when I would talk about, you know, things that I wanted to do in life, you know, like a band and we're going to go tour Europe and like, well, you can't do that. How are you going to what? You can't do that. So that's what that's sort of the the way I was raised with the you can't do that. You know, get real, get a job, go to college, get a job kind of mentality and forget about all these silly dreams or anything like you have to you know, figure out a real life. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a very, uh, you know, I guess sort of typical or maybe working class parents mentality where they're just like, what, like this, this weird art stuff that you're doing, like, there's no way that that could possibly pave the way to anything meaningful, like from a right. financial perspective. So when right. you, when you said you had your eyes on kind of a, you know, the, the touring prize, so to speak. So did you start a band in high school? Um, I'm more just jammed in high school, uh, cause that's where I was, I was trying to pick up the guitar then. Um, and then I didn't have like a first sort of 
well, my only semi-legitimate band that actually got decent shows and stuff like that mm-hmm. until just after high school. Got it. And what what was the uh, what was the name of that band? And what what, what were you sonically trying to accomplish? <laughs> uh, the name of the band was Coexist. Okay. Uh, and it sort of started as a New York hardcore band, and then everybody it turned out had different ideas of what they wanted that band to become. Of so. Course. You would have one song that was, you know, the poppiest thing you ever heard. And then the next thing, just this like total breakdown hardcore thing. And we were a little bit of a mess, but we got a couple of decent shows and had a lot of fun. And I mean, ultimately, it's really just about fun and hanging out with your buddies, you know. So so it was I would say we were successful in having fun. Right, right. Well, yeah. And that, and that like you said, that's the biggest uh, goal. I mean, every band that is obviously, you know lasting and is meaningful starts from that pure spot it's not like you're like oh yeah like let's let's make money off this or whatever (laughs) because that's i mean today obviously bands could say that with a more realistic approach but it's not like back then that wasn't reasonable to say that no no not at all and then when you do you know what the drummer was this kid named sean mccann who's really good really talented um sort of a a mess uh like life wise in that like he couldn't he never got a driver's license he never i don't know if he graduated high school i think he did (laughs) but um but like and not that you know that's a necessarily like a a judgment thing but it was just like you know he couldn't get like a credit card or necessarily hold down a real job or whatever but he could play the drums like you wouldn't believe he was the best guitar player in the band which is always interesting when your drummer is the best guitar player (laughs) you know he could arrange songs like, you know, he was just this really, really talented kid. And when he was in a studio or or making music, everything made sense to him. Um, I just don't know that anything outside of that studio made as much sense. Yeah. Um, but he uh, and he went on to play in, in some pretty awesome bands, but he was plugged in uh, in like the, the scene a little better than we are in terms of knowing better people or the right people or something. And he got us a couple decent shows. Like, you know, we, we opened for indecision once and that was like, to me, like, whoa, we really made it. Like, right. this is a, this is a big deal. Like, this is a huge show. You know, they were such a huge band to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, like that was cool. Like, you know, getting to do those kind of things. Although you realize just how terrible of a band you are and you know, like you're up there, you have no idea what you're doing on stage and you're like, this is so weird. Right. And then like these awesome bands go on after you and you're like, see now they would know what they're doing. Right. Yeah. You're like, you're like, we'll yeah. never be like that. Yeah. And like you guys, you should be doing this. I don't know that I necessarily should be. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, I do think it's interesting. The, uh, obviously like you were saying, the, the sort of practicalness that was obviously thrust upon you because you couldn't, you know, there was, there was no concept of, of being able to do, you know, artistic things for a living. W- was it one of those things where, was there a lot of, uh, you know, pushback from, from you in regards to like, did you have a lot of strife with your parents because of, uh, of those sort of, you know, Hey, here's Patrick, even though he has the baby and we'll give him some slack, he needs to get his shit in order. Yeah, you know, I especially as I started to get a little older, like 18, 19, 20, 21, those years, um, I, I was pretty lost and I think trying to figure out what to do with life. You know, I'd failed out of college um, and was just sort of working a bunch of a handful of different jobs. I was a mailman for a while. Like I was just doing all of these different things and pretty lost uh, and had no direction in life. And I think that was tough for me my parents you know and ultimately me right right yeah i was about to say did you were you reflective over those times where it was just like you know because i do think that your your description is very you know symbolic of a lot of people that 
you know, are maybe are attracted to, you know, these things that don't seem practical. And then, you know, you just kind of wander around until something kind of works itself out. But, you know, were you reflective over those times of being like, man, I hope something opens up or were you just like, well, I guess I'll do this for a while. Yeah. You know, I, it, once uh, the path sort of opened up to me, I was just like, oh, okay. I think I get it now. You know, it's like maybe there is more out there than just this mail truck and going to the bar every night with my friends, you know? Um, and it did, it felt like another sort of, uh, split in the road here where it was like, all right, I'm getting to be a little older now. And I do have to start figuring something out because so far nothing has really worked for me. Uh, and I don't really have anything going and I don't want to be, I mean, I support the postal service and the union and everything. And I'm like, this is awesome. But I knew that, you know, all right, I'm making great money doing this, but I don't really want to be a mailman for the rest of my life. That's not what I have. You know, I have ideas in my head or this feeling that there's something bigger out there, uh, that I just have to figure out, you know, it's definitely an itch, you know, it, it, it kind of just like gnaws at you. And I, I think it's funny because I don't think, um, you know, this is granted, this is a judgment call, but I don't think a lot of people have, you know, a majority of people have that feeling, you know, some people just kind of lock into something and they kind of do that, you know, maybe they're like not satisfied with their job or whatever, but they don't, it isn't that itch to do something more, you know, it's just strange. So it's like hearing you say that it's kind of like, oh yeah, that, that kind of puts it in a more, you know, crystal fashion where it's like, oh yeah, it's clear when you know that you're wanting to do, you know, be able to express yourself in a different way rather than just, like you said, delivering mail. And, you know, like I just knew that um, like if I went to a show and I would be down in the crowd, most of the time I was just like, who are those people standing behind the band? Like, that's where I want to be. I want to be one of those guys watching the crowd now. I don't want to like I like dancing and I'll still, you know jump off the stage or whatever, but I, I, what are those people doing and or do they work or are they just friends? Or if I went to, uh, you know, like a baseball game, I would see all of these other people walking around down on the field and I'd be like, well, wait, how do I get down there? That's where I want to be. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's true that there is a, a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, whatever, getting a band on a stage and like, yeah, putting together, you know, obviously a baseball game doesn't, it's not just like the players show up and that's it. Like <laughs> there's so many other things that are behind that. Right. And, you know, now that I look at younger people, uh, you know, in their say early twenties who are, you know, promoting and putting on shows or they're already, they started a label, they started a zine, they started, uh, you know, whatever it is. I'm like, damn, like, how did you figure that out? on your own, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like none of that ever dawned on me that like, wait a minute, you know, maybe you're not a good guitar player, but you could go work for a record label. That's a real thing. Or maybe you should pick up a camera or maybe, you know, there's a million other things you could do. And none of that ever dawned on me. I was completely clueless to that whole behind the scenes thing until, you know, later on in life until, you know, say 21 or something where I was like, wait a minute, there's a lot more that goes into this than just, you know, being the guy singing. I think that's kind of symbolic of, of, I guess, the education education system in general, where it's like, you know, you're, you're for lack of a better term, forced to think of obviously practical applications to your quote unquote skills. And so right. it's not like, it's not like you could show up to school and be like, oh yeah, like, I think I want to take the, uh, you know, I want to put out a seven inch elective or whatever, like <laughs> the, the, yeah. the ideas of the sort of tangential relations to whatever you're interested in. It's like, 
yeah, just figure out a way to make money off of what you like. Like that's ultimately the the path that you should try to take. Maybe I always felt like I think the system failed me, and not that I should I should be able to do things for myself. But I feel like at certain formative years, um, I didn't get any type of guidance or any type of assistance into saying like, right, okay, so you're really into music or skateboarding, you know, go pick up a camera and you could shoot these videos or maybe you could go do, you know, whatever it is, just one person to, and maybe I should have figured that out on my own, but to sort of push me in that direction. And instead, all I ever got was, which was clearly the wrong thing for me was, so, okay, well, that's great, but what college are you going to and what's your real job going to be? I mean, my, we just told the story on the show not too long ago about how uh, like high school guidance counselors and what was your safety school or whatever. And I was like, or, or no, when, what was your reach school? And I was like, I don't know. I think college was a reach for me. <laughs> right. Uh, just in general. Right. But, you know, I, I had this vivid memory of going to my guidance counselor and sitting down down and he was just like so are you even thinking community college or are you just going to go work for the city out of school yeah, and i was that, like that's it but well, thanks dick you know <laughs> like that's all you have in guidance for me this like this is the one you know one time a year i'm gonna meet with you and it's just like so are you even really thinking about school or right. you know, you're gonna try community college maybe or are you just gonna go work for the city and i'm like all right awesome well wow. thanks i'll just uh yeah, I guess I'll figure those things out. Right. I guess those are the two doors that I can look into. <laughs> yeah. And so then I said to him, I was just like, well, actually, I was thinking about going to West Virginia. And he was like, you should have seen his face. Like, whoa. Uh, all right. Um, great. I guess we could look into that. Right, right. And did, what what the hell's did, wrong with you, dude? Right, right. Yeah, I guess we'll look into that. Did yeah. you, is that the college that you went to or where did you, like, cause you, I know you said that you obviously dropped out, but what college did you go to? Yeah, I went to West Virginia for a year, and then I had a crazy, crazy year. Uh, probably a bad idea going away to a gigantic party school. Um, and then, so you got you got you got involved more so in the party scene than the academic scene. <laughs> oh my! I got a PhD in that one year. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. I, I was already well on my way too. I was already very well on my way. Um, but yeah, I became a master. I got my master's there, okay. and um, and then came back sort of a mess. Tried community college for half a semester and then was just like, all right, I'm just, it's not for me. It's definitely not working. I need to take time off and, and figure some things out. Right, right. Did it ever, uh, did it ever get dark for you in there as far as like, what am I doing? Or was it all like generally sort of, you know, above the board partying as it were? <laughs> oh, no, no. This, it, I got very below board. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, <Okay. laughs> yeah no, it was not a good scene. Got um, it. But, you know, you sort of figure it out and you're like, all right, you know, this isn't working out. You start getting in a little bit of trouble mm -hmm. and it's like, OK, now now we got to now we have to do something with life. Right. But you, you did you uh, fortunately not get arrested during that time or were, were you were you put in the pokey? <laughs> Well, you know, I, for little things, sure. you know, um, like I got arrested in West Virginia, uh, for, uh, like there was like a fight. My buddy got into a fight at a bar with a bouncer and it was like, you know, it's really more of a ticket, but they bring me down. Like it really wasn't anything serious. Right. And you know, that was part of the thing in the town that I grew up in since it was so small. Uh, and my mom worked for the city. My dad for a while was a city councilman. You know, I knew all of the cops by first name. So, you know, I guess maybe this goes back to being the baby thing. But, you know, anything that I did, you know, it always got taken care of, you know. So if I got caught like drinking underage or something, they just brought me home to my parents, you know, and we're like, hey, we caught Patrick down here or whatever. Or, you know, I would be out. 
uh, we used to go to this, uh, South Amboy is right on the Raritan Bay, which looks over Staten Island. And so that was sort of one of our spots that we'd go hang out and drink some beers and the police would come down like like they'd catch me and all of my friends and they wouldn't get out of the car. They would just over the loudspeaker go, Mr. O'Connor, does your mother know where you are tonight? (laughs) And like all of my friends would be just dying, laughing at me, you know, and I, the cop would say, like, uh, Mr. O'Connor, you mind picking up those cans? Mr. O'Connor, can you walk over to the car, please? You know, and like <laughs> they just made fun of me the whole time. And they'd be like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, they would give me a little bit of a talking to or something. But, you know, so everything was, you know, we all knew each other. We all, it was just a small town. Everything was taken care of. Nothing got, got too serious. Excuse me. Pardon me. I must interrupt this great conversation we're having with Kevin for today's sponsor. It's Casper Mattress. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mattresses, really? But this is the real deal. It's obsessively engineered and American-made at a very, very fair price. And now you, you the listener, can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com backslash words and using the code words, W-O-R-D-S. Now, listen, we spent a third of our lives asleep, so we're laying on beds for a third of our lives. Don't you want to make that a good experience? Casper brings together two extremely comfortable technologies for better nights sleep. Latex foam and memory foam. You know what those two things are. You've laid on those, whether it's a pillow or a mattress, but Casper has just the right amount of sink and just the right amount of bounce, no matter what you're desiring from a mattress. And they've got a risk-free trial and return policy. They will deliver it right to your house and you can try it for 100 days. And if you don't like it, they'll pick it back up. That's amazing. Because how painful is the process of shopping for a mattress? You go into a store, you lay on it for like 30 seconds, and you're like, I guess this is good. And then a truck comes out, and they barely are able to fit it in your house. And it's just a nightmare. This is so much easier because you will actually get to sleep on this. So it's $500 for a twin-size mattress and $950 for a king-size mattress. Compare that to any other industry average, and dude, it is an absolutely amazing value. So like I said... $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com backslash words and using the code words, W-O-R-D-S. I've slept on these things. They're incredible. Just do it, okay? It it helps the show and it also helps you sleep and wake up and feeling awesome. So like I said, $50 towards any mattress, casper.com backslash words using the code words. Terms and conditions apply, of course, all that legal jargon, but do it. Try Casper. You won't regret it. I want to let you know about some cool stuff. And that cool stuff is in the form of a record label called Sun Terrace Records, run by the vocalist of a band called Seizures, who is a close friend of mine, but he's doing some amazing stuff with his record label. His record label is called Sun Terrace Records. His latest release is a band called Red Curtain. It's a self-titled 7-inch that, like I said at the top of the show, has sonic markings of bands like Super Heaven, Jawbreaker, Basement. It is a total DIY operation. Obviously, he's running this out of his bedroom he just wants to basically support good music and put out cool records. Visit sunterracerecords.bandcamp.com, stream the stuff, listen, put those in your ear holes. I, I, I just encourage you because this is a total DIY operation. I've put out records myself. It's a tough proposition. So go support Sun Terrace Records. And, you know, let's listen to a little bit of the song too. This is Red Curtain, and here's a song from them just to give you a little taste.
there you go. That was Red Curtain. Buy the 7-inch. Become educated. Support good people. And, uh, yeah, learn about the label. So, Sun Terrace Records. str.limitedrun.com. You'll be able to buy the 7-inch. Do everything you want there. Now, back to the conversation. That's a really uh, safe environment to grow up in from that perspective. And then you're like, <laughs> oh, I can get in trouble for these things. I'm not, I'm not just going to get a pass because of, of my relationships. Right. Well, yeah, and it, it's a safe environment to grow up in, but it's also a total bubble, you know, that you're you don't realize just how warped your little universe is until you get out of it. You know, like I didn't realize just frankly how racist my town was until I moved away and was just like, whoa, like people aren't like that around, you know, everywhere. And then you don't realize certain things about yourself that you're like, whoa, wait a minute. Actually, you know what? It's not cool. Like, you know, you sort of have to deprogram yourself in a way from just uh, a certain way of thinking maybe, or, you know, just certain like things, jokes that other people found appropriate, you know, like, wow, you know what? It turns out that's really not cool. Well, yeah, that that's a very important point. Cause I definitely think that, you know, I mean, the small town mentality that get of that gets described of people is like, obviously like you don't know anything, but it's like, you know, with you, you kind of obviously got, you know, a bit of the outside world coming into that. So then you're able to match those two things up. But then also once your world got bigger, it was like, Oh yeah. Like I didn't know people did that. That's pretty messed up or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the town is, um, like I said, it's a mile square and there's say maybe like 10,000 people in it. And it's like nine, 99.9% white. It's split down the middle, Irish and Polish. Uh, And so, I mean, you could just go from there, you know, Uh, this this little bubble. You could figure out what sort of prejudices may be placed upon people based off of those two descriptions. Yeah. Yeah. And so while, you know, at, you know, my teenage years and I got, you know, like Operation Ivy and Unity and all of that stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I was never, I didn't grow up in a racist household. I didn't grow up, you know, anything like that. Um, But you just figure out that there's things that are inappropriate that you thought were normal everyday life that you're like, whoa, not cool. And yeah, then I I moved to Connecticut and uh, it was like, yeah, I definitely have some unlearning to do or some things that have to change. Right. I, I may I may have a different perspective now based on my surroundings. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And so then, um, you know, after you got through the, you know, the years of wandering, so like radio started to obviously open up for you in regards to that seemed like a path that you obviously wanted, you know, kind of go down. And then obviously kind of another uh, sort of stereotype of obviously, you know, punk and independent music in general is, you know, I mean, radio is the the quote unquote enemy. It's like whatever's on the radio probably sucks and not like you were um, gravitating towards it because of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so like, do, is it one of those things like you just liked the medium and obviously not so much the, you know, the actual music that was being played or what have you? It seemed like the one way that I could get sort of a foot in the door of the music industry, or at least a step in the right direction of doing something for the rest of my life that I re- that I would enjoy, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it certainly got me that sort of like a little bit of access into other things that I'm like, wow, I wonder where this could take me, uh, you know, and, 
I, I could, you know, go see bands or I could go work for Howard Stern or, you know what I mean? Like oh, one of those things. I, I, I've gotten really into radio listening um, while I was delivering mail and I would just drive around listening to all these different shows. And that's sort of where it hit me where I was like, wow, you know, that could be pretty cool because this reminds me of if I was listening to talk radio, it sounds like me and my friends making fun of each other. So I can do that, you know. Or maybe there are still cool radio stations out there like alternative radio that that I would be okay with, you know, playing whatever songs they're spinning. It just seemed like a step in the right direction and and at least finally like a path of, oh, okay, I think I'm going to be able to figure this out. Right, right. Yeah. Like you said, there's like your foot in the door to where hopefully other opportunities can kind of open up from that perspective. You know, it was actually strange, too, because when I got my first like legit radio job, I was working at a hot AC station in Hartford, which is, you know, sort of like they would call it soccer mom music. You know, it's like Sugar Ray and Smash Mouth and Richard Marks and stuff. (laughs) I'm like, wow, like this is so not punk rock, you know. (laughs) Um, But then right at that same time, uh, like Jimmy Eat World broke and the middle was the biggest single in the world. And then that sort of opened up, you know, we were playing that every 90 minutes on the radio station. I'm like, whoa, I'm giving away Jimmy Eat World tickets on this radio station. What the hell's going on here? And then all of a sudden Sensefield has a single coming out and there was sort of this, you know, uh, like those sort of emo bands uh, hit, some of them hit pretty mainstream. Mm-hmm. And it was like, wait, I know these bands. I know I've listened to these guys, you know, I, this is amazing. So it wasn't, that was an odd convergence of worlds. Right, right. <laughs> You're like, I never expect these things to bubble up, like you said, into the adult contemporary world. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, hey, you know, maybe have you ever considered uh, like running a Get Up Kids single? Like, that would be cool. Right. And they're like, no, no, not at all. Like, we'll handle the music. Don't worry. There's a formula. Right. And you definitely don't know it. Right. Yeah. You you be quiet, young kid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You hopped around to a bunch of different stations until you kind of uh, landed ESPN, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Although I only I only worked at a a couple uh, and all of them in Connecticut or actually no one in Massachusetts. And my plan was to, I was either going to go to New York, uh, I wanted to work in LA at K-Rock, or uh, up in Boston, there was WFNX, uh, and FNX was like a legendary station, and they were really, really progressive and played great music, and I definitely, I wanted to work there, and then, you know, somehow I I quit my job, Um, this is a crazy story, actually, and it's 100% true, like one day just like lost it, I couldn't stand the people I was working with at the radio station, and just sort of like went out like guns blazing, middle fingers everywhere, like screw you guys, I'm out, I quit, and split, and um, I left the station, like I walked through the door feeling really proud of myself, and being like, yeah, screw them, you're not gonna take this, and by the time I got to my car in the parking lot, I was like, oh my god, what did I just do? (laughs) I had to get my job. Yeah, the, uh, the, the weight of it started to crush you. Yeah, and I'm like, what? I, I finally got like a decent paying job in radio and I just quit it. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? Um, but I went to uh, over to, like, at the time, my girlfriend, uh, I went to go see her at her work to tell her, like, hey, I just quit my job, so I don't really know what I'm going to do. Uh, and sitting in her office, there was a program director for ESPN uh, who had previously worked at the radio station i just quit and was like oh man i can't stand those dudes they're still there they're the worst and we sort of traded stories commiserated a little bit and uh he was just like so do you need a gig and i was like yeah 
yeah. He said, do you like sports? Like, sure. He was just like, all right, cool. Give me a couple of months. I'll get you in at ESPN. And that's it. It was like, wow. That's how it happened. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Then he actually followed through on that because there's, there's a lot of those, those sort of random interactions you have where it's like, oh yeah, dude, email me. And then you email them and then it's like no response, but that's awesome that, that they actually, he actually followed through on that. Yeah, and I still I still meet up with him, you know, every couple of months maybe. Uh we'll catch up or something like that and he's still uh, you know, a, sort of a mentor to me and and certainly a friend and you know, he meeting him has changed my life. You couldn't I couldn't even begin to, you know, wrap my arms around how much uh he had an impact on my life and how much he changed it. Right. And and honestly to him, I mean it was as simple as being like Hey, HR, like this, this person's good, like put their resume at the top of the pile or whatever. And it's like, it's one simple action could change the course of a person's life. Yeah. You know, and I mean, that's so much of this business is um, like right place, right time. um, And, and who, you know, you know, and I just happened to, man, I hit it both right there in that moment. You know, I just happened to know the right dude at the right place at the right time. Right. Right. At ESPN, you work, how long did you work there for? Um, I was at ESPN for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, and sort of bounced around to different shows and stuff. Right, right. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's like a, obviously a huge, huge, huge company and you, you can do 5 million different things in there. Um, yeah. I'm sure in certain, there's certain aspects of your jobs that you, you didn't like. Was it cool being part of like such a large structure like that? Or was it kind of, you know, cumbersome and overwhelming? Um, you know, I really liked it. It felt like, from there, the world really opened up uh, where it was like, oh, wow, I can really make something happen. You know, I went from being on one radio station to producing shows uh, that were now on 400. So it was like, you know, well, I, I definitely have options now. Um, and I, I tried like forever. I just didn't know the right channels for a long time. But to get on uh, the X Games, you know, I was like, all right, that would be so sick. And I'm still into skateboarding, a snowboard, you know, I'm like, this would be so rad. Um but that, you know, so that was sort of the scope of thing. It was like you went from working in radio where, oh, OK, it's cool. Like, you know, radio stations are everywhere. So theoretically, I could get a job everywhere to now I know somebody in every market in the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like the, the world totally opened up. Yeah, no, that that's that's pretty cool. And especially like you said, where you can kind of have your eyes on so many different avenues that you can go down and you don't feel uh, yeah limited to obviously just your. I, well, I'm either doing afternoon radio or morning drive time. Like, what? <laughs> those are my right, two. Op- yeah. Those are my two options. Um, yeah. And did you immediately gravitate towards like? Because obviously, you know, the, the show you're on, you know, Dan Patrick show you're on now, you know, you're you're essentially a co-host for the show, right? I mean, or or is the label actually producer? Like, what? I don't know what role you're actually labeled as. Weird. I, you know, if you look at my actual title, it's um, senior producer slash talent, which I, I don't really know what that means. It's okay. just like HR speak. I, I would say I would call us more sidekicks. Okay. And that sounds like it sounds like that's something that, you know, especially inciting, you know, Howard Stern, obviously, you know, he was always surrounded with with very talented sidekicks, as it were. Was that something that you wanted to be like on mic and you were kind of drawn to that? Or, you know, did you like the more behind the scenes putting together the show sort of stuff? Well, when I was working in Hartford, um, I was like the producer slash like sidekick guy for the morning show. And so I, you know, put everything together behind the scenes, but I was on air at the same time. And I really liked that. 
And then when I got to ESPN, I, I was all behind the scenes and I, I missed the on-air part of it. So I knew that somewhere down the road, uh, I, I definitely wanted to get back on air. I didn't think it would be in sports. You know, I knew that I definitely wanted that part of my career to come back. There's something that's inherently strange about, you know, like either the desire to like play in a band and like sing or like be in front of people. And then there's mm -hmm. a strange feeling of what it's like when you first start, you know, talking on a microphone and like hearing your voice and like having to like fill dead space and stuff like that. Was that, uh, did that come naturally or was that something that was kind of a learned trait uh, you, you had to force yourself into? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's intimidating, you know, I mean, and even you doing this podcast, I mean, you know uh, what it's like if somebody doesn't give you, an answer you're like okay what am i gonna say now uh <laughs> totally where's what this, am i gonna do <laughs> where's the, where's this going like you better and that's i mean it's it's obviously luxurious for me to like you know pick and choose my guests because obviously like you know i'll be i'll be frank like people get pitched to me a decent amount and i i'm like no they're like i i, know, I either know them or know someone who knows them and they're not going to be that good of a guest so for mm. the exact same reasons you illustrate so yeah i i, I empathize yeah. with what you're saying it's so silly now that i work in talk radio because i would when i was a dj uh at a radio station and i would see like the intro to this song that you have to talk up is 35 seconds and I would be like, oh, my God, like, what am I going to say for 35 seconds? That's so long. You know, and you're trying to hit the post and you're trying to make everything sound real clean. And I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know how I'm going to get 35 seconds. This is going to be a disaster. And then, you know, so you, so you have to work that out. And now you're doing, you know, 15 minute talk segments where that you have to fill up. There is no music. There is no, you know, nothing to sort of bail you out there. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, there, there's certainly filling the space, I guess, does get. Uh, a little intimidating, all that, but but that's part of the great thing with an ensemble show like us. Uh, and you mentioned Howard Stern. You know, the, this second version of the Dan Patrick Show away from ESPN is absolutely modeled 100% after what Howard Stern did. Mm -hmm. That was we left there and we're like, all right, so what do we want to do with this new show? And at first we were just doing it was just Dan talking by himself, just like the old show was, and it just didn't seem to work that right you know it just didn't feel the same it was like wow this doesn't feel like it's working at all right and uh we would just sort of you know why don't you maybe you'll chime in a little bit and then maybe you know you'll laugh and then maybe we'll you know do a couple of segments with you and a couple of that yeah and then it just sort of took off and um we all eventually found our our voice as it were on the show yeah no that's you know indicative of what obviously, you know, Dan Patrick and you guys did in regards to, you know, breaking away from the mothership and obviously, um, you know, creating this space in which you guys could obviously be successful and, you know, I mean, make a living and sustain yourselves. Um, because it's like you, you, you see other people like, you know, obviously Bill Simmons with what he does inside mm. the context of ESPN with Grantland and stuff like that. But then obviously you guys, you know, completely subverted that and you were just like, okay, well we can't, get shit accomplished in here of what we want to do. So we're going to kind of, you know, do it on their own. A am I reading too much into it? Or was it, was it kind of that like, all right, like we really want, you know, I guess full and ultimate control of our, our, our own product, so to speak. You know, when Dan left ESPN, I think it was just sort of, it had just come to an end and there was sort of, it was just a conclusion there. And that chapter in his life was over. And then, you know, he left to start his own company and you know, basically took me with him. Uh, which was awesome. And at the time I was, 
you know, single. Yeah, you know, I wasn't married. I didn't have you know, my son. All I really had was, you know, pay my rent and go to shows, you know, or whatever it was. So uh, and then we, we started doing the show out of his attic and it was like guerrilla radio you know, absolutely. We had no idea really the undertaking at first, you know, what we were really signing up for um, because it was just us. There was no, there was no engineers. There was no, any type of support from anybody. And we had to, you know, literally build it from the ground up, you know, putting in windows and buying the first computer and getting chairs and a desk and a printer and a, you know, and then building it into, you know, a year later, you're on a couple hundred radio stations or something. And it's like, you know, you you could watch it grow in leaps and bounds. There were these huge milestones that we would hit. And it was like, well, all right, now it's really starting to work. And now it's really taking off. And we did have that total control uh, although people would push back on certain things where they're like, I don't know. You know, one of the criticisms that we got when we first, the Danettes first started on the air, um, one of the, my bosses, um, at the time, he's no longer with the company, but he was just like, I don't know. You can't have that guy seating on the air. He says, dude, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, dude. like, dude, you don't get it then, you know, it, because the way it worked out, you know, Dan was the patriarch, right? Right. He was the father figure. Um, you had Paul, who was just recently married. You had Todd Fritz, who had been married and had kids. And then you had me, who was the young single one who was still going out every night and hanging with his friends and had no responsibilities and, you know, that kind of thing. So we sort of had every demographic covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's how the show, it, it worked that way. Right, right. Um and was it, you mentioned like those milestones, um, cause obviously like, you know, I mean, I, I can equate, you know, starting up your own radio show with the same context as obviously starting up your own band, you know, what, what were the, like, what was one of the milestones that kind of stuck out in your own head that you were like either excited or proud of that, uh, stands out to you? You know, if we hit 12 radio stations and then we jumped up to 50, then you jump, then you broke a hundred and it's like, holy crap. And then we had one day that was actually really bad in the radio industry because like a whole bunch of people got fired by this one company. Uh, and it was sort of awful that the same day, like thousands of people were laid off. We got like 150 new stations and it was like, wow, this actually feels really awful. Uh, it, it was a great moment for us because the show just really hit like a huge number of stations. I think we broke like, you know, 250 at that point or something, but it came, it felt like it came at the cost of, you know, a livelihood for all these people. Not, not our fault indirectly, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, not that we were responsible for it, but we were certainly the beneficiaries of it among many other shows. Um, But that felt pretty awful. (laughs) And so one of the milestones that stands out is actually sort of a bad one. Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's very interesting because you do, um, any sort of adult looks at a situation like that and can see like, you know, even though I'm not, like you said, you're not, your show is not technically responsible for this. You, it's like, you feel like you want to provide a home for all those people that lost their jobs. You're just like, well, Hey, we had something awesome that happened today, but I'm sorry. We can't really (laughs) revel in this. Yeah. And you know, as someone who came from local radio and then was working on a syndicated network show, you know, I can relate and empathize with people who've worked in local markets and are, you know, hustling and they took on the jobs of four different people to keep their gig there. um, You know, the the industry was just, it was really starting to collapse at that point. Um, Mm. And I mean, it already had been, but it was really, really, really 
falling apart. And um, you just know, you know, how a lot of people are like, they're just desperate to stay in the industry and keep that job. And then eventually, after all of the sacrifices they had made, it just finally came to an end. And then, yeah, you're the you're the guy who's just like, yeah, but well, it was good for us. That's right. cool. We're, you know, like, hey, we're we're growing because we're technically uh, kind of <laughs> not part of the system, but we are at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's so strange. So yeah. strange. No, that's that's a weird thing. Um, the last thing I want to hit on was the you know, kind of what we alluded to at the very beginning, where it's like the you know the whole jock mentality and a lot of people that you know don't come from both of our backgrounds, um, but obviously adopt that mentality or even people that come from our backgrounds and still have that sort of superiority complex. Um, do you find that, uh, kind of like ebbs and flows within sports or do you find that, you know, certain, certain eras of it, uh, are, are, are more prevalent, you know, cause I, I just, it's hard for me to, um, sometimes like the sports that I enjoy, it's like, I like basketball and I like golf. And it's like, there are so many things that, uh, I just don't identify with as far as other sports are concerned, primarily, you know, just because of the, whatever, a stereotypical fan base, you know? And so, yeah, I was just wondering from you having your unique perspective, um, you know, do you see it kind of like changing and ebbing and flowing or, or, you know, are, I guess are sports fans more, uh, sensitive than they once were is like the bullying less. Like, I don't know if you have a perspective on that. I'm surprised at how much sports and music intersect and how, you know, we'll have, you know, there's, there's so many, and it's, it's one of the, my favorite parts of the job is that I've gotten to meet so many people and gotten to know and would consider friends, people from bands that I looked up to and am still a huge fan of and have been for 20, 25, 30 years um, that I've gotten to know now through sports. So you know, to say that, like, you know, Jamie Jatha from Hatebreed uh, is a friend of the show and he's been awesome. And I got my nose broken at a Hatebreed show almost 20 years ago, you know. And right. so to now have through the Dan Patrick show, know him, uh, it, it was like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, how did I never saw that coming at all? You know, mm -hmm. but if you told me back in the day that he would be composing a theme for the Dan Patrick show and I would be on that. And it's, you know, Jamie from Hatebreed. Read. I'd be like, you're crazy. There's no, you know, it, it just seems so far fetched. Or that we would have odorous, uh, odorous from Guar, sitting in one day reading our poll question. Okay, that's pretty crazy. I would have never believed that. Greg Hetson from Bad Religion, and we're using Against the Grain as one of our features. Uh, and you know, he's super cool. Uh, and you know, I get to meet him and and talk with him. So that, there's all of these people that that are sports fans that I would have never thought were or would have never imagined these two things would collide. So I, you know, I, I focus a lot on that um, and just how in you know, it really made me aware that. Everybody loves music. It's just a matter of which kind of music it is. And that, you know, CJ Wilson, uh, who's a pitcher for the Angels, is uh, like straight edge PMA guy, totally down with H2O and all those guys. Like, you know, it works sort of both ways. Uh, I think even the man, one of the guys from like 10 foot pole. Yeah, I want to say Scott, it was a Scott, Scott Rudinsky, the yeah old pitcher. Yeah, 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 yeah totally. right, exactly. So, you know, it it intersects more than I ever thought it would. Um, and so, the, in terms of like the other sort of bully jock mentality, that's definitely there. Mm -hmm. And uh, on the show, we tend to talk about that quite a bit because um, with the Dan Patrick Show, we talk more issues and 
societal issues and how things play bigger picture. We don't do any X's and O's. Right. We're never going to break down the Mariners bullpen right, right. or, you know, <laughs> totally. three, here's, four here's defense. My hot, yeah, here's my hot take on what happened last night. Yeah, that's never going to happen. Uh, none of us are interested in that, especially Dan. And it's one of the, you know, reasons that I think I, you know, I'm, I'm so happy and fortunate to be on the show because this fits my personality perfectly. You know, I'm so into politics and social issues and things like that. And to be able to express those views on a national platform through sports uh, is interesting. And, and I'm really happy with that. Yeah, no, that's I think it's a really important point, because I think that those those stereotypes and archetypes of of people being bullies within the context of sports because it's competitive will always exist because you're always going to have people drawn to the, the power um, of of winning and beating somebody. Um, but what's more important is the fact that there can be an alternative conversation about that, like obviously, which is what you're providing. And it's like, that's why obviously I wanted you on the show is because it's like, you know, we kind of sniff out our own where it's like, you know, you mentioned <laughs> pulley and i'm like oh yeah scott rinsky it's like we you know like we have this this <laughs> stupid memory bank of like oh yeah here's all these people who are involved right. like you know you kind of know where everyone's at but i think it's that just shows the fact that it's like i said we can kind of you know smell at our own and like i think i mean speaking for me personally i get excited when there's people like you and people like you said you know cj wilson and all these other people that are in prominent positions that are hopefully being able to use that position to hopefully influence people for, you know, good and showcase the fact that there's another voice besides the, you know, the, the mass one that's out there. Absolutely. And you know, that the sort of that power of positive thinking is so important and you do have people that when you can connect these dots, you know, and find commonality with people that you wouldn't normally expect to, I think it's ultimately a really positive thing and just sort of reinforces, you know, just positivity, positive vibes, good things. Uh, and you know, you're not alone in the world, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This, this weird subculture is, you know, kind of much, much larger than we all originally anticipated when we first got into it and we were, you know, 12, 13, 14 or whatever. Um, the the last thing I want to mention was the, or want to ask was, you know, because obviously you have, uh, you know, such an experience within music and I'm sure you pitch ideas and like, you're, Obviously, like you mentioned, Jamie Jost, it's like you're excited to have him on the show. And I'm sure the other, you know, Dan and the other, uh, you know, co-hosts that you have are excited to some extent. But I'm sure that they find your enthusiasm for these people that are relatively unknown in the mainstream spectrum to be quite hilarious. Like, is it funny when you're like, oh, dude, but this guy's coming. They're like, who? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because, you know, we can meet like, you know, we'll get somebody in studio like Kobe Bryant will come in. I'll be like, Hey, what's up, Kobe? How you doing? You know? All right, cool. You know, Cause he's it's just like, dude, yeah, that's awesome. man. he's like one of the best basketball players of all time. That's really awesome. But then yeah, odorous is sitting in and I'm like, Oh my God, this is so sick. I can't believe that we're going to do this. You know? Uh, so I definitely geek hard on, you know, that's just sort of where my passion is. You know, I love sports are fun, you know, but it, there's that mute that connection that emotional connection you have with music uh it still dominates you know who who i am and and my personality and my thoughts and feelings and it just yeah you turn sometimes you turn into a 16 year old all over again when you're like wow i can't believe i'm gonna get to meet this guy or this guy is gonna come on the show or whatever it is you know right right totally yeah you just yeah you fall back into that that uh that world of being like oh my gosh they're they're (laughs) they're larger than life (laughs) you know but i give dan a lot of credit though um yeah i've mentioned it a couple 
times, but to have, um, you know, Odorous from Guar to come sit in uh, and and be on the show. And I could see some of the other members of the of the show were like, what in the hell are we doing? And how did Seton talk Dan into doing this? Because this is crazy. And luckily it worked because I would have really had yeah. to, you know, eat crow or whatever for a long time. But, but to see him there, there's this big alien with his ass hanging out, uh, talking about the Redskins, <laughs> like, you know, giving like a really serious take on why the Washington Redskins need to change their names. So and, and he's hitting like really like making some, you know, great points. And it's something that he cares about. Uh, and then at the same time, yeah, he's got like this – you know, gigantic spikes coming off of his shoulders and, yeah. you know, whatever else. It, it was fantastic. Right. He has phallic symbols attached to his, his body. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, he had to put away the cuttlefish right. for the night, but instead wore something he called the mangina, which I was like, all right, cool. Like this is, this is actually on, you know, national TV right now. Right. Um, and uh, I'm so thankful that it worked. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really exciting. Well, dude, I really appreciate you hanging out on this, and I, I think this was a a perfect. Uh, a, a, you were a perfect guest, and you were able to share a perspective that uh, you know most most people don't have working in a uh, you know major major sports world, so to speak. So, thank you. Yeah, awesome, dude. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. All right, there was the show. There was Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick. I appreciate you hanging out with me for that long. We were in a scheduling battle. We kept. Scheduling, rescheduling, there was a time where he called me and I was like, oh, you're three hours early. And he's like, you're right. <laughs> We're on different coasts. But anyways, thank you so much, Patrick. I really appreciate that. Visit the show's website, 100wordspodcast.com. The producer, as always, is Tom Richfield, forever attached to this show until the day he dies. I might want to etch it into his gravestone, just out of sheer attachment to the show. I'm going to enjoy Paris. You have a good week, and I will talk to you next week. Be safe, everybody. <laughs>